out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the new fast automatic daffodils. Because I recently spoke to Andy Spearpoint to find out more about life, love, poetry all that other groovy stuff that happens when you're in a band um, from the late 80s into the mid-90s. Anyway, after lots of casual chat about this and that and all that kind of malarkey, as you do in showbiz, uh, we got down to that very exciting subject of the early formative years. I know, it's a classic. Anyway, Andy, tell us more. It's over to you. Yeah, music-wise, it, well, it was a strange... My, my folks had, you know, they had a record collection. When I was a kid and I used to watch Top of the Pops, I didn't like much. Was on, I didn't really like it, you know. I thought it was rubbish, and um, for the most part, you know, I used to see it every now and again. But my folks used to listen to kind of classical music with a bit of jazz thrown in. But then my mum had a few other things, and it's Joan Armour trading. Well, that's seventies, seventies Joan Armour trading stuff. Me, myself, I. It's a classic. Uh, before that, the show stuff some emotion. That. Yeah, all that kind of all that kind of stuff. Because she went she went kind of horrible and power pop in the in the early eighties. Drop the pilot. Uh, yeah, oh, terrible. Yeah, but all the all those I think it was about two or three albums she did in the seventies, and it was kind of the um, soundtrack to you know I've, I've realised in hindsight that it was the soundtrack to the breakup of my parents' marriage. You know, but I, I they used to play this stuff, and they they both they both liked it. And they both went to see it, and it, it just. Um, I just thought it sounded fantastic. I thought it was gorgeous, and I still love those those albums. Um, so there was that, and and I remember, you know, my dad saying to me once, "What you know? What do you?" Because I was like, you know, twelve or something like twelve or thirteen, and and it, and it's quite sort of it's not adult in the kind of you know, it, it, the themes are quite grown up, I suppose, about relationships in it. And he was saying, you know, what do you what do you like about this? Why do you why do you listen to this? And and to me, it was just the the the, the quality of that beautiful production. You know, they they beautifully produced albums, and they're you know they're full of um, you know lots of sort of session musicians who I suspect yes, and I think there is some. I think she worked with still. some amazing producers as well, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was that, and then my mum bought um, uh, Bob Marley record, Kaya. And that um, that sent me that did that was brilliant. I loved that. Um, so, the, but the first stuff that I kind of took on of, of, of my own was all the two tone stuff. So the first gig I ever went to was um, the specials at Lewisham um, Lewisham Odeon, um, and this was I was fifteen, and this was at the height of Skinhead Terror. Yes, and, um, they made all it was fantastic. They made all of the skinheads take their boots off, um, and so at the end of the evening in the foyer of Lewisham Odeon, there was a pile of identical Doc Martins, about kind of four or five foot high, and several hundred disgruntled skinheads trying to work out which the hell was theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, well, they did really well. That must have been quite a tense moment from the sort of stage to the audience. Yeah, skinheads in their socks. I mean, you know, it didn't stop them from having a good old fight, which was, you know, par for the course in those days. Uh, all those gigs. And I used to, I went to a lot of those two-tone gigs. Uh, I saw the, uh, I saw the, I saw Madness a few, a few weeks later. I think they did an under-15s gig at Hammersmith Odeon. Oh, that's nice. Um, so I went to see a lot of that stuff. And then, uh, you know, I was in, I was in London, and I had um, 
uh, a friend who was, you know, by the time I was kind of 16, I, I had a Saturday job in Catford. And there was a guy there who was in his early 20s who I got friendly with. And we, him and, him and a couple of my schoolmates, we used to go to see loads and loads of gigs. And in fact, one of my oldest friends sent me a, a little flyer that he found online of um, a gig that we went to in 82 at the ICA, which was um, uh, birth, we went to see the birthday party. And um, a band called the Ivory Coasters, who I saw a few times, a few times who were a sort of um, high life band. Right, um, very popular. Few, few English, few English players, a few African players. And um, do you know, are you familiar with Blurt, Ted Milton? No. Oh, check out Blurt. They are, they're fantastic. And I saw them loads. I used to go and see them all over London. And, and in fact, the last time I saw they've split up now. But the last time I saw them was in Manchester about... 20 years ago, I suppose. Right. Uh, fabulous. Um, kind of really odd. Uh, Ted Milton plays um, um, tenor sax in a, in a totally unique way. And it was, so it was Ted Milton on sax and screaming, uh, a drummer and a guitarist. And that's it. Really stripped down and uh, dynamic and very, very funny. Uh, just used to make me smile. Um, really kind of, yeah, fairly, fairly out there, but they were great. Yeah. So I just, I, I was going to say, there's a lot of high life bands actually, weren't there at that time? There was a lot. Yeah. Of benefit, there was a lot of benefit gigs, and they were always there, sort of. I don't know what country they would, you know, helping to to um, assist in some fundraising. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Swapo fundraiser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I remember going to a Swapo fundraiser. <laughs> Yes, I can't, yeah, I, and I remember people would have posters on their wall, you know, just these kind of events and t-shirts and the whole thing, and it was, you know, it was always a good evening, you wouldn't really want to go and buy the record and play it at home, but it was always quite nice. Yeah, yeah, nice well I just, well, well I was in, I was just into dancing, I just used to like going and dancing, so if, if, you, if you could get drunk and dance to it, I was there, yeah. Yes. And then sort of, and then sort of with your two tone, because you had the beat as well, who was sort of brought out, I think it was in 79, was I Just Can't Stop It, which was that classic album. But then sort of the, what about the world that it was indie pop that had started? Because you had the post-punk period and then indie pop and you'd had the sort of bands like Echo and the, like, yeah, Echo and the Bunny Men, and then Teardrop Explodes and then, you know, the Smiths, you know, did that, did that sort of come into your orbit? Uh, Teardrop Explodes, yeah, I remember seeing them on top of the Pops uh, and, and thinking that was brilliant and, you know, going into school the next day and going, did you see that? Did you see that? And everyone going, yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. Um, Echo and the Bunnymen, not so much. And I never liked the Smiths. I had, I remember, I remember hearing the first single. Well, now, that's a lie, actually. I heard their first single and I thought, this is brilliant. And then I heard their second single and I thought, yeah, it kind of sounds like the first one, but it's not quite as good. And then that just kind of... That was just the way it went for me and the Smiths from there. It was like, yeah, that first single was great. The rest of it, yeah. Now I was never I was never really into them. It never did much for me. I had all sorts, it was kind of really eclectic because I, I had all sorts of friends and you, you kind of pick music up off your friends and a lot of the time your friends are um, kind of influenced if they've got older siblings. So I went through like a massive Hendrix phase. I had a friend who had an older brother who was like a proper old hippie. So yes. I used to listen to loads of Hendrix and The Doors and you know, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, a, a kind of real mishmash of stuff. Yeah. You know, well, I, always, I, I was into reggae. Yeah. Yes, well, that definitely didn't happen in our life. 
But I was kind of being brought up in the sort of countryside in East Anglia. We, we were quite behind the times, really. And so, but I had an older brother, seven years older than me, who was, his period was prog rock. So I, I sort of right, okay. yeah, became yeah, obsessed yeah. with prog rock, probably more in the 70s. And have have some sort of un, not understanding, but have sort of you know I know a lot of that music because I thought oh this is very exciting I must go and yeah, play yeah. It when he's not about when because he'd banned me from going and playing any of his records so I find it fascinating but it was kind of more the the eighties but even so it was still difficult if you heard about a band that you liked actually getting to listen to it was quite tricky you had to go to the record library. Yeah, and find someone to record it from. So it was quite a process, actually. And there was those books like, you know, classic albums, and you sort of leaf through them and think, oh, what's this band? This sounds like it's going to be a good one. I'll see if they've got it at the record library. So there was a lot of TDK D90 cassettes. Yes, and and Capital Radio. That was the big one for me because and my because my dad rigged me up a, a a a single loudspeaker in the corner of my room and a mono cassette player, which I had linked up to the radio. So I just used to have Capital Radio on a lot. Yes. And if there was anything came on that I liked, I'd press record. Uh, so I had cassettes full of clunky edits with DJs talking over the beginning and end of tunes, and, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what else happened for you? Because the band, because I, you know, the indie years and the 80s was kind of my decade, I suppose. You know, it was very much about John Peel and recording yeah. the show. And then it was about the NME on a Wednesday and going to all these gigs and clubs and trying to find these obscure 12, uh, seven inch singles. So when did you sort of, how did your 80s pan out? Um, well, I went to, I, I left school and went to Leeds um, to go to university because that was what you did. And, and I didn't, you know, I didn't really have an interest in the things that I'd gone there to study, but I got into, um, I'd always been a frustrated actor, you know, because I went to a school where you had to be one of a certain set of people if you wanted to do theatre stuff. And I wasn't part of that set of people. And I so I found myself, um, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning to go to a lecture for love nor money, but I'd be there at nine o'clock in the morning for a, for a, for a rehearsal. Um, and, and because I was music obsessed and didn't care that I didn't know anything about it, I, um, I ended up just making a racket with a bunch of people. Um, we had a ridiculous band, and, um, which is the band that I still every now and again do gigs with. And we had people, we had the, well, various members of the band went on to be in um, Utah Saints. We had a we had a Utah Saint. We had Excellent. a um, we had a. Um, uh, do you remember a band called the Snapdragons? Rings a bell. I remember the Utah yeah. Saints was really huge for one. That yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone knows. Um, one, yeah, uh, we had a Snapdragon. We had a we had another guy who's, who still plays in a in a goth band called the Cassandra Complex. Who. You know, still have a a following at uh, German golf festivals. He's now quite a high-powered music music business lawyer. Every yeah. now and again, he goes off to uh, you know Dusseldorf and does a German goth festival. <laughs> yeah, Just to get to so, back here, right? Because Leeds yeah. at that stage, because I had sort of friends who lived there during the eighties. There was a lot of squatting, weren't there? And there was the obviously yeah. the the goth scene because there was Sisters of Mercy and people like that but also there was a lot of anarcho-punk bands because you had Chumbawamba from Leeds didn't you so yeah, did yeah. you did you sort of find yourself slightly in that world of you know anarchist groups yeah yeah I, again I kind of yeah I mean there was because that whole little scene around Leeds 6 which was the area where most of the students lived that was really lively and there was stuff like um there was a pub that used to hold every now and again in the summer 
they'd, they'd like the whole weekend would just be local bands playing upstairs and um you know you'd go up to the park and pick a few magic mushrooms because it would have been late summer and um yeah there was just there was a lot going on i was there when the clash came to leeds and you know and sort of you know hung around looking uh, looking cool on the university campus and i think they did a gig out there yeah, they did a gig in the pub car park because i've seen pictures of it I, I, I missed that one but uh uh, yeah, it was very lively uh, and, a, and a very eclectic mishmash of stuff as well. Um, and yeah, that kind of classic 80s stuff of a mix of all the, the punk stuff and the reggae stuff and all different kinds of black music creeping in amongst a whole bunch of um, <coughs> white students who didn't know one end of a guitar from the other but wanted to make a noise. Um, so, <laughs> yes. you know, that, yeah, yeah. It was a great period for music because interesting, because I was obsessed with the Smiths. Um, so indie pop, I put down 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths. It's not the most ex exciting theory, but then ecstasy comes along, doesn't it? And the Smiths break up. Lots of those kind of indie bands who'd been going for a certain amount of years had slightly got set forward with their second or third album, lack of money, dynamics of the band. And so the music scene really changes then, doesn't it? Sort of towards the late eighties, because then you had the dancing with all those bands like, you know, Primal Scream and the, um, the Happy Monday Soup Dragons, guy called Gerald who was big, but that was kind of very, you know, and the, and the kind of, uh, yeah, I suppose Manchester was starting to happen as well as the Seattle grunge scene. So how were you, you know, from your, uh, what was your first band called? Uh, <laughs> well, embarrassingly enough, we were called Dread and the Badass Weeds. <laughs> we're, now <laughs> called, we're now called the Weeds. The original concept was that uh, Keith, who was the drummer, um, he bought a, uh, he bought a drum machine and he, he also bought one of those first um, four track uh, Tascam, uh, you know, little multi-track things. And, um, so the original idea was that we were going to try and do a, we took too many drugs. We, we were going to try and do a tune in every single genre based on one preset rhythm on this drum machine played at various different speeds. That was the original concept. So we, <laughs> we, had, a, <laughs> we had a set of songs based on this. Um, and then we, um, and we did a few gigs and we weren't bad. People liked us, but it was stupid stuff. It was stupid stuff. And we, you know, we just used to play parties and just take too much speed and do versions of Oops Upside Your Head that went on for three hours and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but somehow we, somehow we, most of us ended up going off in sort of um, slightly more serious directions after that. Um, and, and I can't remember what the question was. Well, um, the musical scene had changed a lot, hadn't it? I think that was the general gist of my... Yeah, I mean, this was, this was sort of more 84, 85. And by the time I went, I went to Manchester in 86 to go to theatre school. Um, and I met, the, I met the, other, the other guys in the band again because they, I, I, some, you know, a mutual friend knew them and they'd already done some playing and they were looking for someone to do some, um, to be a, 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 a front man. And, and I was up for it. Um, and they were great. And that was a real revelation because it was a completely different kettle of fish. It wasn't a bunch of people off their heads playing versions of books upside their head for three hours. They had tunes that had a structure and that stopped after three minutes. But there was, and they, and they were particularly influenced by all that stuff like kind of pop group and all that really jerky um, stuff like that. Serious music. Yeah, so that was great. And, um, 
but again coming from a place of sort of DIY ignorance so we knew how to um, tune guitars but what we hadn't quite worked out in the early days was that the notes were supposed to be the same every time you tuned them so I remember Justin taking his bass to um, Johnny Roadhouse the music shop on Oxford Road because the action was so high and the guy sort of picked it up and went, and he said, you know, do you, do you always have a tune like this? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, he'd had it, it was tuned about sort of three or four tones too high and the neck was starting to bend. So we were always in tune with each other, but we weren't actually playing. <laughs> yeah, we, and, and that sort of, um, I guess it's music that comes out of that kind of ignorance. And it's very, very hard to do that mate, these days. Because I mean, I've worked in music education for 20 years now and um so kids now they just have access to all this stuff that means that that um well first of all they're exposed to, you know they've got the world's music you know that thing you were saying of like you've heard something you, you heard something you liked but actually finding out what it was was quite hard yeah. and often you'd think you knew what it was and actually didn't know what it was because you didn't have any sort of context to put it in whereas now you know the entire world's music is on the bloody phones and also there's this horrible thing called music education um which is sort of um arguably uh, this is a line from andy the our old uh, german goth music lawyer who he was on the board uh, for band on the wall in manchester so he's always been involved in music and he was saying it his late take on his life the only good music ever came out of art schools never music colleges and uh, his take on music education was it's great education it's terrible for music <laughs> which <laughs> i kind of like the purity of that um it's very hard for people to come up with their own sound if they're a technically proficient because by in order to become technically proficient on an instrument these days in particular you will have played loads of other styles of music and you're encouraged to have that really wide thing rather than going fuck it this is what i like i'm going to do that um and i mean and the other thing is like you know that thing you were saying about um, you don't really understand music anymore and I've, so I, st I, mean, I still make my own music um, and, and wonder about and, and think a lot about what it is that I'm doing and why, that, why it is that I'm doing it. And I've experimented with all sorts of stuff. And one thing I've realised, you know, quite recently, is I had a lot of time for myself over the summer and made, did a lot of recording and sort of took it in some slightly different directions. But one thing I realised, I, I, I'm, I'm not a programmer. You know, I've listened to lots of electronic music. I like a lot of electronic music, but I can't do it. Yeah, it doesn't. It, it, my brain doesn't really deal with it very well. I, you know, I like guitars and drums and things like that. Yeah. Yes, well, it's well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was I did an interview with a producer a couple of weeks ago who you know started off in the UK and then sort of ended up doing stuff in America, and I think it was kind of working with some you know massive names, including Marin and Manson, and he was and he was you know they were doing one of those sessions. I don't know if it was with particularly with that particular band. But he was saying to the musician, you know, can we, you know, guitars, can we do this and this and we'll just try and something? And they were going, no, that doesn't work with that. And it's like, in the UK, he said, you know, because people weren't quite so good, they would just say, yeah, fuck it, we'll just do this, we'll try this and, and, and get some that works. Whereas they, you know, he said they were so well, even though they had all the tattoos and they looked like, you know, LA rock gods, you know, they'd actually been in other bands, like, you know, this one yeah, guy yeah, yeah. picked up a guitar yeah. and played this amazing bluegrass. He said, yeah. yeah. You know, I was I was with Katie Lang before, you know, hooking up with okay, yeah, yeah. and it was a bit like they were just too good. It was like, well, yeah. try and do something that's going to surprise us. But 
you know, you, you know, they just were ac not academically, but they just knew music theory, and it's like, no, you can't. That yeah, they tend to be very. We did a we did a tour with um, we did a big tour in the states with a American band called Consolidated, who were. Uh, oh yes. You know, do you remember them? They were yes. kind of like a sort of white oh, public, white public enemy kind of yeah. industry. Brutal equation. Yeah, yeah, and they were great. You know, they were. They, but uh, uh, but then they were. They had all that kind of real serious political thing, but. Basically, they were just really a rock, and they were all terrifyingly proficient. You know, when we, you know, when we first saw them playing and talking to them and realised how technically good they were, we were like, "Oh Jesus!" And I mean, we 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 held our own because we were we were pretty tight by then. But in terms of uh, technical ability, and all the American bands that we ever played with, you know, you we we toured with them. We toured with a toured with a hip hop band from Philadelphia called the Goats, and again, you know, they had a drummer who who'd been drumming in um, churches in, you know, doing gospel since he was like 14. And he, and he was amazing. And he could eat an entire tub of ice cream in one sitting, which was quite impressive. But you yeah, know, they all had serious skills and they all took, they all took their music really, really seriously. But like you say, they didn't have that sort of DIY, uh, let's just make a mess and see what happens thing uh, that, that don't really work over there. Yeah, no, different, you know, different, yes, that's what, that's what, yeah. so, so with the band, how did you, you know, because obviously you get, you get together and quite soon you get your John Peel session, which is often the big kind of blessing, isn't it, for people? So, and you, and you got it with Dale Griffith as well, which people yes. have an interesting yeah. relationship with, with. And that exceeded our wildest expectations because when we started, you know, like we, we we were like, you know, if we can get a record played on John Peel, we've done it. We're amazing, you know, brilliant. That'll be it. And and I mean, we were in the right place at the right time, but we were good as well in a funny kind of a way. Um, and I, it's, uh, there's a guy. Um, we did it the first time we toured in the states. We we went on. We were on mute in the states. We never made any. We never did anything like that really in terms of sales or anything. But there was a guy called Larry Crandus from Mute Records, and he's Recently, um, there's a some bunch of people set up a Facebook page called New Fast Automatic Daffodils Must Tour Again. And, um, and, and I've been kind of lured into this Facebook page. And um, this guy, Larry Crandus, popped up a few weeks ago. And I remembered him because he was a nice guy and we spent a bit of time with him in, in Chicago. And he'd recorded um, a gig that we did in Boston. And, uh, and he, kept, he was posting all these tunes, all these videos of tunes, and, and the audio was pretty good, and he knew what he was doing with the camera, and it's a lot better than a lot of the live stuff that's up on YouTube, most of which is pretty bad, and I'm just running around shouting. But it's just like really odd seeing yourself, what, uh, when was that? 30, 30 years ago, that's you know? Hilarious. And just this kind of weird energy, and... Um, jerkiness and and i'm quite critical of myself because i wish i in a way i wish i was and, and it's kind of stupid because it sort of defeats the whole point but if i could do it again now i'd do it a lot better in a lot of ways right you know, I'm, a, I'm a much much better um writer and i i was a much better singer my voice is shag now i throat cancer a couple of years ago but um i was a much better singer but, but the thing that I wouldn't have, of course, was the thing that I think worked, where, where I'm looking at me now and I'm thinking, Jesus, that's out of tune, or what am I doing? <laughs> but, but there's that thing about just channeling, channeling the energy. And what we were really good at was whipping a, whipping a crowd up. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite critical of a lot of what we did, but I think we were a really fucking good live band. And I think we, 
you know, we, we could really get an audience going. Um, yes, there was definitely there was definitely a festy atmosphere with the band, wasn't yeah, it? You yeah. know, I have to say it was um pretty, you know, impressive. And you always seem to be getting introduced to um by Tony Wilson, which was always quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah, you've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Well that was that was that was three spliffs too many when he decided to talk to us like oh, uh, and we I think we were just back from the States and I didn't quite know what planet I was on either. So, yeah, I remember sort of oh, God, <laughs> So with the band, was it very fueled by just drinking and lots of speed? Uh, no, no, we were fairly drug free, actually. There was a lot of alcohol, uh, but we had at least, ooh, at least two band members who, you know, would turn their nose up at the spliff. Um, I, I wasn't one of them, unfortunately. Otherwise, I'd be able to tell you where I played in Norwich. <laughs> um, but uh, no, uh, alcohol and fun, you know. We really enjoyed ourselves. We really enjoyed ourselves. We had a we had a great time. I mean, like you know, a lot of bands. By the time you split up, you, you're sick of the sight of each other, and and it gets a bit of an uphill struggle. And people are going, you know, it's a classic story. People are going in different directions and all that stuff. But but most of the time, we got on really really well and had a lot of fun. Yeah, and you also you managed to get on various record labels, and not many people I've interviewed have been on played again, Sam. So how was your experience yeah. with that? Uh, yes. <laughs> Well, on the one hand, great. They were nice people. I liked them. We, we had fun with them. Um, we got to spend some time in Belgium, which I know sounds like, you know, the sort of start of a joke saying how terrible Belgium was. But in actual fact, it was great. It was quite weird. We did the, the our second album. We recorded there. So we spent like six or seven weeks over there in Brussels. And um, we had fun. We had fun with them. But it was that old-fashioned record company bollocks of um, of seeing seeing something in this band and hoping that they become something else rather than seeing something in this band and thinking, yeah, that's what they are, brilliant, you know. Um, so they, I, I got a royalty statement from them the other day, which we still gave out yet, which is which is all very very entertaining. And it, you know, generally you look at it and it's you know lists of digital plays that are as long as your arm, and then you earn nine pounds eighty from all of them, or you know, it'll be to cover a period of a quarter and it will show that we've maybe earned 1,200 quid in the last quarter from this stuff. And so you'd think, well, you need to divide that by five people, two or 300 quid every quarter, that'd be nice. Except for the fact that we're still unrecouped to the tune of 71,000 pounds <laughs> because, they, because they wasted so much money on trying to turn us into this thing that we weren't, you know. And they'd spend sort of fifteen thousand pounds on some shit video that would get shown three times on uh, late night European satellite TV, right. and they threw up all the releases because they were in um, because they weren't in the UK. They didn't quite understand at the time. You know, the whole deal was you you had one week you released a single, and if you didn't kill that single within a week, you might as well not have bothered because you had one week to get. Um, sufficient sales to pop up on the um you know the sort of radio one radar and hopefully then get played on radio one if you got played on radio one then you'd sell a bunch more records and you might end up on top of the pops well but that was by no means a given because it was still like you know it's still that period that you're talking about the end thing i remember we were we, we were on our way back from a gig at a service station and top of the pops was on and we saw the happy mondays on there and we thought it was hilarious we were like, look they're on the fucking top of the pops. Ah, ridiculous. 
and that you know that became the norm fairly soon. But up yes. until then, those sort of bands like that, you didn't get on top of the pops. So Play Against Sam just used to screw up all the releases. So the the most commercial one release that we ever had was Stocko. And we used to regularly get, you know, independent number ones in the enemy and stuff, but that didn't translate into sales. Um, and so the way, how did they screw that up? Oh, yeah. OK, so they released it on the week that Radio 1 had its anniversary of something. So Radio 1 was all about itself that week. So it wasn't, yeah. like, wasn't like to pick up on anything. The other brilliant thing they did was to yeah, I think in order to maximise um, sales within your fan base, you'd release a, a limited edition version of the thing with a bunch, couple of bonus tracks on it. And um, for the first three days of the release, that was the only record that was actually in the shops because of some screw up. So, you know, it was and, and it was that sort of thing over and over again, just lots of money wasted and lots of um, inept um, handling of single releases and um, plus to be fair you know we weren't the easiest thing to sell because some of the singles we produced were not particularly commercial um, so yeah you know it was um, unlikely to end in um, yes the best album was the first one we did which we made for I think cost us 12 grand and we produced it with it was it was produced by our sound engineer Danny who's done a lot of stuff his, his elbows live sound engineer has been for donkey's years now um and he did a very nice job and it sold i think it sold about fifty thousand copies and it cost us 12 grand and the third album kind of you can reverse those figures it cost about 50 grand to make and cost, sold about twelve thousand copies you know it's just all that stupidity and the last one in particular as well kind of we we'd all started just finding it difficult to agree, come up to a consensus because there was no sort of single songwriter it was all consensus stuff so, right you know, fucking nightmare um yes yeah. dynamic did you did you ever have management with the band oh, oh yeah 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 that was a story <laughs> <laughs> we did yeah we had a terrible well we were originally we were married uh, married we were managed by um paula who um uh, ran um, Playtime Records, who put our first single, just a couple of first couple of singles out, and that was fine. You know, we were beginning out. She was enthusiastic, she knew her stuff. That was all fine. But then, by some, I don't know. It's like you look back on these decisions. Uh, um, Dolan, the guitarist, his dad put us in the way of this chap called um, Eric Longley, who went on to be operations manager for Factory, and um, he was. <laughs> He was a uh, music, but he was an accountant, but he worked for uh, like, he'd worked for KPMG. He'd been, he'd been Bross's tour accountant. And somehow we were persuaded that having Eric as our manager was going to be a good idea. I have no idea how. He used to turn up to gigs, you know, he, he was a sort of, he must have been in his kind of late 30s, early 40s at that stage. And we were the teenage that he'd never had. Right. Uh, and he used to turn up to our gigs wearing a kind of blue satin KPMG um, uh, bomber jacket, you know, with brass really. <laughs> and I'll never forget him. We, there was some dispute with a promoter at some little gig in Oxford or something, and Eric's going like, do you know who I am? I'm, Br I'm Bross's tour accountant. And we're just like, oh, fuck. So Eric was our manager for a while. And that was ridiculous. I, I, my proud boast, I sacked him. <laughs> we, we had a, we had a meeting. We did, we decided to sack him, and we had a meeting. And we were all too nice, you know. We were a nice bunch of guys, 
And so nobody would actually say, Eric, you're sacked, but I, I really can't deal with elephants in the room like that. So I got a lot of kudos for being the one who sacked <laughs> <laughs> him. Um, so yeah, we have, we have management. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, again, with hindsight, if only you'd been that band who had a really clear vision early yeah. on took control were you, were you looking at other bands who were sort of starting to hit that big time that had come from that indie stable because obviously the c86 world didn't really come out it didn't get that far out of the scene but then the the people who went to see those bands formed bands and suddenly they were the ones who were doing well on top of the pops and especially in the brit pop period so did you sort of feel that you you know you could see that wow you know there is there is potentially we could we could be quite big at this stage Oh yeah, and there are times when you, you, you there are times when you convince yourself you're going to be massive, you know. Um, but it's a very strange thing when you're in that world. You 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 take it so seriously, and it, it becomes very hard to see it from anyone else's point of view. Yes, uh, and we did take what we were, we did take what we were doing very seriously, but we also we were all we we just enjoyed we were we were enjoying ourselves, and that kind of was the best thing about it really so it made it hard to um you know think too hard about uh, about a lot of some of the bad decisions that we made i suppose because it was because it was a laugh you know yes and you did some massive events and festivals as well didn't you, mm, you did, yeah. did you do this milton Keynes gig as well mm, milton Keynes. did you do you were going to the great indie festival, a Midsummer Night's Dream at Milton Keynes Bowl. Was that something that you didn't do? No, we never did that. No, we did Reading a few times. We had a fantastic gig at Reading, actually. Though I say so myself, we um, I think we were voted the best band in the NME tent that year. I can't remember what year it was, but um, the nothing was working. That's right. There was all sorts of technical problems. So we were about half an hour late on by which time we'd worked ourselves up into a frenzy of nervous energy um we absolutely fucking ripped the place up it was amazing i remember just sort of seeing people swinging from the uh, tent poles and we played a short ludicrously fast and brutal set and um yeah that was good yeah yes. but we, we did a lot of festivals and we we did a lot of touring on the continent as well and again that was partly facilitated by the fact that we were on play again sat who were interested in promoting us in, in on the continent, and that was great. And, and was the was your follow up album Body Exit Mind? Yeah, this was produced by uh, Craig Leon. Craig Leon, yes, yes. So how, how did that sort of um, you know the famous second album, which can sometimes go either way? Well, I I still I still like that album actually. I think a lot of a lot of what's on it's good. And Craig was Craig was interesting and a very nice guy and a breath of fresh air in a kind of mad wacky New York art kind of a way. So we had fun with him in Brussels. He used to take us to posh restaurants and buy us a nice wine that we couldn't afford. Because he'd worked um, with the Ramones and television talking. Yeah, Blondie. He 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 done. I think he did. Um, what was the big Blondie album? What? Plastic, um, no, uh, Parallel Lines. Parallel Lines, that's right. Yeah, I think he did that. Um, and he was, uh, <clears throat> and that album was quite dark and heavy. Um, and there's bits on it that are quite ambitious production-wise. Um, it, yeah, 
we always we always had uh, sort of issues with people kind of pulling in different directions. So from my point of view, it was quite a, we were quite a difficult proposition for somebody for for a vocalist because a lot of it was very groove based, and um, I was delighted on those rare occasions when I was presented with something that actually had a kind of chord structure. Um, yeah. And we did, we did do we had a we had quite a few sort of. Um, quite catchy pop songs um you know they were still kind of fairly loud and fast but they were catchy pop songs but they they tended to um not be as highly valued as the kind of potentially uh, ambitious groove explorations which are not always easy to find vocals to fit over again i was i mean i was looking at one of these things that those you, you man posted on this Facebook page the other day and I was looking at what I'd done to it and I was thinking, oh, shit, it's just like real lazy shit. If I had a chance to do that again, I know what I'd do and it'd be really good. Um, but at the time I found, yeah, uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of compromises. Not as good as it should have been. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and was it sort of putting it together? Because it's such a sort of, like you said, it's quite um, fast, furious and groove based. Is it quite, I mean, did you have to rehearse it quite a lot before going in the studio? Did you sort of have to yeah, we, we, we had quite a work ethic going on. We, you know, we used to play a lot. Uh, we had rehearsal rooms and we took it pretty seriously. You know, we'd, we'd generally be down there pretty much every day, writing stuff, playing stuff. And we were touring a lot at the time as well. Um, so we, we, you know, we, on a good day, we were very, very tight um, and knew the stuff like the back of our hand. Uh, so, yeah. Yes. So when you came, we got to the mid-90s, your third album. Did you feel during that sort of like, okay, we've got to do the third album. Did you feel like it was going to be the album and then split? Uh, yeah, the writing was on the wall by then. Yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was um, yeah, you know, the, the, the choice of producer again for that was nonsense. Um, but it was, again, it was driven by sort of management record company thinking that if they found the right producer and spent enough money on it, they'd have a breakthrough. Um, and just wrong. You know, it had some good stuff on it, um, had some really good stuff on it, but the way it was produced didn't do it any favours at all. Who was the um, producer on that? Uh, oh, what was his name? Jeremy... I remember. Very nice guy. We had, we had a nice time with him. But he was, it was proper sort of... He was a... He'd, he'd, he produced he produced some massive sort of dance crossover indie thing hit i, don't know, I can't remember what it was um but uh, now it all went in the wrong direction i mean you, things are things are things are definitely going wrong when a band like us ends up with backing vocalists you know <laughs> what um was was Brit, was was brit pop you know this whole sort of cool britannia was that all sort of part of the thinking of the band at the time, thinking, you know, something like you said. You no, thought. the thinking of the band at the time was all about dance music. Um, Dolan and Justin in particular were really into dance music. And at times that was a that was a really good thing. So, you know, we, you know, some of this stuff we did early on, I mean, they were always into that. Um, and, and it was sort of, there was some quite interesting stuff about how do you apply that to a guitar band? Um, without doing, because we weren't generally the sort of groovy, sloppy, you know, baggy Monday style stuff. We had a couple of things that were a bit along those lines, but that stuff was generally a bit more driving than that. Um, but 
I think there was more and more of that influence coming in, which again made it harder to sort of come up. I mean, there are some proper songs on there, but again, the record company's idea of what you do with a proper song is, oh, that sounds like it could be a proper, proper song, so let's make it slick. And that just ruined it. And there's some of the stuff on, and then weird decisions, like there's a tune on there, oh, what's it called, can't remember. Anyway, it's got a fantastic bass line. <clears throat> but again, this is the reliant influence of dance music. Justin, the bass player, was obsessed with sub-bass at that time. So by the time it came, by the time it was done, we, it had this fantastic bass line. You, you couldn't hear it. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he insisted on only putting the sub-bass in. So, you know, it'll make you shit, but um, it won't make you dance. <laughs> <laughs> so was he listening to a lot of Jar Wobble at this stage? No, he was never into Jar Wobble. I don't know what he was listening to. I mean, he went on to be a serious, um, serious DJ in Manchester. Um, had a, uh, a club night called the Electric Chair, um, and is now a mover and shaker in the sort of Manchester bar and food um, as a, a, a bar and food empire. Um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. So did you have a moment then after the album come out? Did you have that spinal tap of looking at it and then thinking? Did you have a yeah? Did you say this is the end? To quote Jim Morrison. Um, yeah, we didn't re we didn't quite realise it as clearly as that, but you know the writing was definitely on the wall. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, I can't remember quite what the cow is. Oh, we were sick of we were sick of it. We were kind of sick of the sight of each other um, to an extent, and just you constantly banging your heads against the fact that the record company want this. Yeah, yeah. But basically, the the, the 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 tension was around the fact that we found it very difficult to come to any sort of consensus by that stage. Um, and, and we finally, I mean, we had really disappointing because we we recorded the last gig that we ever did. We didn't know it was going to be the last gig we ever did. We did it, uh, it was downstairs at the Hacienda, the, the gay trader bar downstairs. And we recorded it on um, ADAT machines, had a good, good thing. And we had quite a lot of new material, which we'd tortuously managed to produce over the last few months. And some of it was pretty good. And then, uh, and then the band split up. but. A couple of years after that, we dragged these tapes out. It was more than a couple of years, actually. And we took it into uh, studio, um, Mate Studio, and started um, dickering it up to turn it into something good. So, you know, replaced some of the bits that weren't so good and, you know, started engineering it and mixing it. And it was sounding really good. And then the, um, the studio got robbed and all of the hard drives and everything um, disappeared probably into a you know the back room of a pub in Levenshume. I've no idea where it would have ended up but that was the end of that so that was disappointing because uh, some of that stuff was sounding really good you know, mm. a lot better, a lot better than anything on our last album in terms of it actually sounded like us you know yes have you managed to archive all the material all the sort of b-sized the John Peel show sessions and all that there's bits of it floating around. I mean, Paula from Playtime, she was talking about uh, putting out a release of a lot of kind of early stuff and demos and things like that, some of which was good, some of which was terrible. Uh, but that's never come to anything. A load of stuff, someone put it up on, you know, when kind of s streaming first started, I can't yes. remember. Like somebody ripped a load of stuff and put it up on some of one, one of these platforms. You know, this is years and years ago when that stuff was just going on and went, oh, brilliant, hey, look at this, it's all here. And of course it meant that there was absolutely no point in our record label doing anything with any of it. And um, possibly, uh, you know, we might have actually made a few quid out of that, but uh, that never happened. Um, so, uh, 
yeah, you know, there's still bits and bobs floating around, but yes. Uh, and then what? And then what did you did you then sort of continue your life as a, a lecturer? Oh, I, I never quite made it to such lofty um, lofty status. I um, I I was a primary school teacher for a couple of years, and that was horrific. Um, it's not an easy transition, um, rock and roll to primary school teaching. And um, then I started, I moved, I moved out of Manchester and I moved to uh, a place called Marsden over towards Huddersfield out in the, up in the Pennines. And just for fun, because I'd always been impressed with Icarus and his drumming and I'd done a little bit of bongo playing and whatnot. I, I saw that there was a local uh, African drumming uh, group meeting in a local church and I went along to that and soon realised I had an aptitude for it and um, and then I started going to a guy in Leeds um, who ran a, a sort of world music shop called Knock on Wood and I ended up playing out a performance group in there and uh, I got to a point where he was going he was saying to me you know you're about as good as I was when I started doing this stuff in schools why don't you buy a load of drums from me and start doing working with kids at the time, I was working in quite a, a rum uh, primary school in Rochdale with a lively bunch of naughty boys. And uh, so I, I, I got a bunch of drums and started going in and doing drumming with these kids. And all of a sudden, it was like, yeah, that's actually, this is what I want to do. It's like, I like this. You like this. You're good at it. I'm good at it. Why don't we do this? Yes. And that's sort of where my career went from there. And I soon got fed up with the African drumming thing because I'm not African. And I thought that there were actually um, some more interesting directions in which you could do group music making with children. Um, and so I was, a, I, I was a kind of freelance community musician for about 10 years. And then I worked for the music service in Manchester, working in schools. And I, I, I worked with all sorts of groups. I'd you know, done quite a lot of adult mental health stuff. Uh, done stuff in secure units, quite a lot of stuff with adults and kids who learn in disabilities. Um, and I worked in mainstream music education for five years um, and then moved to Ireland five years ago and have started up the music work again in the last few years. And have just and, and a lot of that's been adult mental health stuff, which has been really fascinating because it's a slightly different kettle of fish here. Yeah. You're working with quite elderly groups and there's a dismal history in Ireland of bad treatment of people with learning disabilities, which means that a lot of people are undiagnosed. And uh, if you try kind of bringing the issue up with uh, health service professionals, they get extremely defensive and um, uh, refuse to acknowledge that uh, these people might actually have different needs to other people with mental health difficulties. So I've, I've ended up working with these mixed groups of quite elderly people with all sorts of stuff going on. And um, I've, built an, I've built myself an orchestra of strange homemade metal instruments and i'm doing it's a kind of homemade gamelan yes. I, do lots, I do lots of stuff with kind of semi-improvised ways of working and getting people up leading the stuff and incorporating bits of electronics and soundscapes and uh getting people writing poems and um do quite a lot of work with people's everyday objects we sort of storytelling through objects and translating that into music um so that's what i've ended up doing um mm -hmm. Yeah. But then you had your cancer scare. Yeah, yeah. That, well, yeah, that screwed me for 2018. I had a tumour on my vocal cords, which is not ideal if you're a singer. Um, and I was lucky it got caught early and I, I came back to the UK and got, uh, got nuked at St. James's Hospital in Leeds, God bless them. Um, 
and touch wood I seem to have made a full recovery but my voice is still a bit shagged I can sort of sing on a good day but um, very very sensitive and yeah, I, I barely drink anymore because alcohol knackers it um, good way to give up smoking um, yes <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but I, I, I still I've, I've done I've been having a bit of a musical renaissance, you know, um, the, the, the whole business of making the orchestra was really interesting. And I just started a really great project. I got a commission to do a piece of work with a, a, an elderly group and a youth reach group who are kind of kids excluded from mainstream education. And it was all around this business of using everyday objects to tell stories and then translating into music. And I was working with a friend of mine who's a lecturer in arts and technology. We were, we were going to make playable sound sculptures out of it and all this stuff and that. We just started when fucking COVID came along. So that got kicked into touch. Um, but I was kind of really into the idea. So I went and did a whole bunch of music making based on that idea myself. Just like, right, I'm, I'm pooped up here. Well, it's not just me. I'm with me, with me, with me lovely lady. But, um, you know, I'm stuck here for however long. So I started looking for objects in my, every, in my immediate surroundings and um, making pieces of music based on them. And... Uh, Kind of trying to move a little bit away from the idea that you've got to write a song yes yeah. um, mm. so that was really interesting and and i've been doing a bunch of jazz as well again I, i'd started playing the saxophone i played this i'd had a saxophone for years um and then when i realized that my voice was probably shagged i thought i'd take it seriously and i i live in a very rural part of north tipperary and the only music available here really is you know, if you like acoustic guitars and singing um the Baran? Cover versions of Neil Young songs, you're fine there. Um, or you can do a bit of Irish trad, which when it's good, is very, very good. But most of the time, it's horrid. And fucking Auntie Mary had a canary up the leg of her drawers. Um, so I, don't, I get very little joy locally. But I, I was going to jazz classes in Limerick with my saxophone, and I ended up learning stuff, which is terrifying, you know. I learned to read, finally learned to read music. I learned a bunch of theory. It was great. Um, but then you, you suddenly find that, you, you know, you, you suddenly know all this stuff. And so how do you apply that? And I was applying that in this music that I was making with um, these objects, which I've got, it's all up on SoundCloud. Um, and, but then I, then recently I was like, okay, what am I going to do next? And I was, I was just browsing on YouTube and I came across um, the great, film of uh, like half half an hour of Sonic Youth oh, right. at, uh, at the basement. And I was, I'd, I'd listened to a lot of Sonic Youth when I was, you know, I was younger, but I hadn't listened to any for years. And I, I just watched that and I was thinking, I'll give it five minutes. And I ended up watching the whole thing. It's fucking great. It's like, God, yeah, they're really good, aren't they? And I was like, yes, actually, what do I really know and feel I'm good at? Guitars and drums and that stuff. So I've just started a whole bunch of new recordings and it's all guitars and drums and you know more rock and roll but with a few jazz chords sorry i've done some stuff with dolan at the start of the summer actually <coughs> we've done one tune that's almost a new fans tune yeah two actually yeah excellent we were talking about doing something with that you know, other than new fans um but uh, yeah there's one in particular that i'm very pleased with yeah well, that's very exciting. No, it's 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 interesting. I remember I was doing I did an interview with dear old Miles from the Wonder Stuff, and he said he, uh, for him he was quite lucky because he did all his kind of album touring last year was going to have this year to recover, and then you know go and kick it off again. So his kind of timing was quite good. But he said it's you know like this is the period where 
you know, you sort of regroup and start writing new material for the next project. So I guess this has kind of forced you also to look at those kind of things and explore those things. Well, yeah, and I just really, I'd, I'd still really like to do some playing with other people. And, and, and the stuff that I was doing over the summer would be very difficult to play with other people because <clears throat> you'd need a very odd collection of musicians to do, to do it justice. So I thought, right, well, let's, let's go back to basics and do something, you know, if I can do something that works really well with a couple of guitars, a bass and some drums, there is actually a chance that I might be able to find some people, you know, yes. exploit, exploit some of my contacts and try, and try and find some people who might want to play it at some point in the future. So, you know. Well, it's nice to do. So just last question. I mean, um, yeah. What would you, if you could have said something to an 18 year old self, you know, what, what would you, what <laughs> don't would you do that? <laughs> don't, don't do this. Get into HR. Don't yes, be so stupid. <laughs> yeah, don't know. Sorry, go on. No, I just wondered what a little bit of advice or that kind of key couple of things that you kind of thought, God, yeah, I've really learned that. Not bad learned, but just the wisdom that you've developed over the years, decades, you know, that you thought, yeah, that, that's something that I would have told myself or anybody else for that matter. Um, it would be something to do with realising that this is, you know, this is, this is a better chance than you think it is to do something, you know, and to take it a bit more seriously. <clears throat> I took stuff, there was, there was a certain seriousness there, but the, um, it's, it's, it's a very hard thing to say because, I, you know, you, you, can't, you can't regret what you are as, a, as an 18-year-old, I don't think. Well, you can if you end up doing something really fucking stupid that one, you know, that ends up screwing yourself or other people. But um, I don't know. I, 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 I honestly don't know. And, I, and I'd say there's, there's, there's certainly a lot of stuff I could have done better. And that whole business of just being there for the fun. Um, you know, it's easy to say, it would be easy to say, well, you should have taken this a little bit more seriously, made more of the opportunity. Because like I'm saying, you know, I was saying if I could do it again now, I know I'd do it much better. But that's not the point. And um, being in a band at that age is about liberation. Uh, and that was a massive one for me. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think that was enormously worthwhile. Mm. And, and it made me not. I have a sort of slightly kind of complicated relationship with work. I'm, I'm definitely my, my. I'm, I'm the, I'm the best employer I've ever had. You know, um, I'm very strict at being accountable to myself. I'm not quite so good at being accountable to other people. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you know, you and you, you have quite a. It gives you quite a high threshold for job satisfaction when you've done something as intense as that that was so enjoyable. Um, and if you then go on to get a job that doesn't do it for you, you ain't going to stick it. And, you know, I've done a couple of jobs that I've just, <coughs> no way can I stick this. And I've, and I've binned it. Um, so I, I don't think I could meaningfully give myself any advice as an 18-year-old. Yes, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> which, is, which is very far from saying that what I did was great, you know, <laughs> quite, quite the reverse. I know. <coughs> But, but no, um, you know, it's still, it's still. It's, you, uh, do you play yourself? Are you, are you, are you, a, are you a band person as well? Or no, I was just always a fan. You know, it was just always a, an obsession and a fan. So um, yeah, yeah. 
Well, and you it's, know, uh, and it's one of those things, you know. I mean, what was quite interesting is that where I kind of came from, there weren't that many bands. There weren't a lot of bands about. You know, there wasn't a live and and Norwich. You know, let's face it. I mean, we had the Farmers Boys, Higson's series. Oh yes, I saw them all. And uh, but there wasn't like you know like Cherry Red Records are putting out you know compilations. They had seven CDs of Manchester and five CDs of Liverpool, and then you know this compilation for this place and this. You know, it's like Norwich is like anyway. Let's not do Norwich because we you know we wouldn't have enough material for for one album. You know, so the the area's never been brilliant for that. Wow, yeah, there's been a lot of music being made, but. But no, it, it it wasn't a thing. When I was growing up, to be honest, there was a lot of just playing football and sport, um, but very little musical instruments. And even in my yeah. later teens, there wasn't really that thing of, you know, like a lot of people say, oh yeah, when we were at school, we got a band together. It's like, bloody hell, really? That's amazing, you know, so it didn't happen. But, you know, John Peel, obsessed, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I just feel very lucky to have, to have fallen in with a bunch of people that... Um, Allow me, allowed me to do something good. Yes, and it's there on YouTube. Yes, sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes that isn't. <laughs> it's very odd. It's, it's impossible for you to look at yourself doing something like that and <clears throat> be objective, really. Yes, with Tony Wilson saying very, very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> is it kind of? Is that kind of the star machine? Is that quite a weird one at times? Um, how do you mean? Well, you know, you're not the same person at the at the bar, are you? You know, the, buying the drink or buying the ticket. You know, you're the one who's got that adrenaline. You're backstage. You go on. Oh uh, yeah, at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. I never really had like, too much of a problem with that. It was all, it was quite egalitarian. I think. I think the scene that we were part of was quite egalitarian. They were, and, and it was never as if we were so massive that, um, you know you'd be getting stalked or, or anything like that. And we were we we were a very easygoing and likable bunch of people. So we did tend to get on with everyone and enjoy being with people. And you know, and like we do a lot of touring on the continent and that was fantastic. And that's actually one of the most valuable things about being in the band is just that business of being at ease with people you've met five minutes before. Because when you're touring it's like that you you know you you'll meet a bunch of people you're going to be with them for the next 10 hours maybe and then you probably won't see them again but you're all there to have a nice time so yeah. there's, no, there's no time to waste with any nonsense you just kind of and that's that's i think it's been a really valuable thing because i was you know i was a classically shy and introverted adolescent um so that's why you know when i'm talking when i talk about this sort of thing being a liberation that's uh yeah that's it yeah interesting yeah. Yes, it's very interesting. Anyway, that is also the end of the interview, apart from the goodbyes, which are always very emotional, but uh, you have to say them. That, dear listener, was the end of the, um, yeah, well, you get the point, don't you? The end of the interview, that was um, the new Fast Automatic Daffodils with Andy Spearpoint. Um, a big thank you to Andy for giving me the time for that interview. If you want to contact me, I know, I don't know why, but you might do. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86Show. And also, these have all been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. There you go. It's that simple. Right. Keep it positive, though. It's a weird year. It's a weird decade. Anyway, stay safe. Have a great week.